Well, thanks, James. Hey, it's good to be here. My name's Ben. I'm one of the pastors here at EV Church. And uh, particularly warm welcome to you if you're new or visiting, and especially lots of love for the dads in the room. Uh, Over the last few weeks, we've been thinking about honour and respecting God's church and what that looks like. And if, if you're a dad, I'm a dad, I've got three little kids, and there's one thing I want a little bit more of, it's a little bit more respect from my kids. Amen, dads. Yeah, um, yeah. I think uh, that my, one, of my, one of my kids' favourite phrases at the moment is calling me poopy daddy, which uh, I don't love. We're working on, we're, <laughs> we're all a work in progress, right? If you've got young kids and you're a dad, you can relate. But we are working through 1 Timothy. Uh, we've been thinking about this theme of honour, how it plays out in the church, God's household. And particularly this morning, we're going to be thinking about how it plays out with God's leaders, And so why don't we start by praying that God would help us to understand what he's saying and that we would be the kind of church that does this. So let's pray. Father God, we pray as we now come to your word that you would help us to hear it, to love it, to treasure it, to put it into practice. We pray that personally we would be the kind of people that honor leaders, that lead well in the different relationships and roles that you've given us. We pray that we would be a church that wants to do church your way, not our way. Um, Would you protect us from the um, desire to ever want to do things not your way and help us this morning to think well about what that looks like to do it your way? Amen. Well, I, I am aware as we come to a passage like this that your cultural background will have a big impact as to how you read something like this. Uh, For some of us, we didn't grow up in a Western country. Um, Most likely, if you grew up in an African country or an Asian country, this is you. The idea of honoring your leaders or your elders is really normal. it's, It's normal and you don't find it hard. And for you, your danger this morning is that you will blindly honor leaders. Um, Whether they deserve it or not, whether they're the kind of leaders that are worthy of honor or not, you'll just blindly follow them, okay? And so there's there's one danger there, and and probably the uh, danger there is that we ought to be a little bit more discerning in the kind of leaders we follow. But others of us here this morning, perhaps if you're like me, you grew up in a Western country, New Zealand, uh, Australia where I grew up, uh, other places like that, and we tend to have a more of a, a flat view of authority structures. We tend to think of our leader or our boss more like a mate, uh, someone who you can, you know, they have a bit of extra say, uh, but, you know, we're, we're much more flat in the way we view authority. And, and to be honest, this is me, uh, I'm a little bit suspicious of authority, and a little bit critical of all things like organized leadership. Is that you this morning? A little bit suspicious, a little bit critical, a little bit wary of leadership and authority. Um, maybe, maybe you've lived in New Zealand for a long time and you've been influenced by our media's negative perceptions of authority, particularly authority in a church. Uh, or if you've been on the internet any time in the last, you know, since the internet was made, the internet has this unique ability to showcase particularly Christian failures from around the world. Um, You you used to kind of maybe broadly hear about it in the news or different things, but now with the internet you can hear the stories, it's more personal, and there's all this kind of uh, failure of church leaders that's kind of in the air that we breathe. It might be, you know, hearing about um, Brian Houston and and Hillsong and some of the allegations that came out there with his father Frank and the, the tragedy of that story. Or I don't know who's listened to the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Any, any listeners of that? A few people, okay. Uh, a, a inter- such an interesting podcast about Mark Driscoll and some of his failures as a leader and, and what we can learn from that. Uh, all, all of that to say, 
uh, we come to a passage like this with some bias. All right, It might be a bias one way or the other, but our experiences shape us. And so what we want to do today is correct our cultural bias and come and sit under the Word of God and see what He has to say about leaders in His church. Okay, here's the big idea. We ought to honor leaders in the church because they are working to grow us as disciples in the Lord. That's the big idea. But here's the second half of the big idea. We need to remember that only Jesus is the perfect leader. And so we need to have wise systems in place as a church to, to deal with this reality of leaders who might sin. Okay, honor our leaders, but have wise systems in place. Oh, and at the end, we're also going to touch on slavery real quickly, okay? So that's where we're going today. Uh, uh, we'll, we'll get to the slavery stuff um, at the end. But here's the first point. It's in your outlines there. Elders are worthy of honor. If you've got a Bible, we're going to work through the Bible this morning. So pick it up with me, verse 17. Let's have a look. Uh, it says this. The elders who are good leaders are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Okay, here's the general principle. Paul says that elders or pastors are worthy of honor. Okay, it's fascinating. We're a month out from the election here in New Zealand, general election. And I reckon honoring leaders is just about the furthest thing from anyone's mind. Isn't it? Like most of the ads and the campaigns that I've seen, they seem to be kind of about uh, making leaders look bad, making them look silly, discrediting them, um, saying, oh, we're not dumb like those leaders, so vote for our leaders, right? They're not even really about their own policies at that point. But God's church is not to be like the world. We're to honor our leaders, and, and we ought to honor our leaders. We saw back in chapter 3, didn't we, that there are certain qualifications for the pastors or the elders of a church, and, and these qualified men have the job of leading and managing God's church. That same word manage is the word for lead here in chapter 5. And, and it's this word that we used to describe, the pastors. All right? Some people call them elders. Some people might call them overseers. We call them pastors here. It's the ones who have, have the responsibility to lead God's church. Notice, though, that Paul qualifies that these leaders are worthy of honor if... What? If they're good leaders. Did you see that there? I think Paul is capturing two things here. It's both the way that we do it, and so it's the way that leaders lead if they do a good job. But also this word good, this is actually a moral word. It describes doing something God's way, the way that he intends a leader to lead. And so I think what we see here is that church leaders who don't lead the way God says they ought to lead are not worthy of this kind of honor not worthy of being listened to and, and respected in that way. And, and so this is why character matters most for leaders. We talked about that a lot in chapter 3, didn't we? Notice as well that uh, Paul says that honor is to be given especially, or you could say particularly, to those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Now, why is that? Did you wonder as it was read out? Why this special honor um, to preachers and teachers of the word? Well, it, 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 we need to understand what Paul means by double honor. Okay, I think what Paul means, and we'll get into both of them, double honor, he means both in the sense of respect and in the sense of remuneration or pay. That's the kind of the sense of double honor. Because this word honor, it means to value something highly, to, to see it as 
weighty and significant and give it the value that it deserves in your life. And so first one, respect. Paul says here that elders are to be respected. They're to be listened to, particularly those who teach the word of God. Because as, as pastors, as elders teach the word of God, ultimately what we're doing is trying to bring the word of God to bear on your life. And so as, as you listen to elders who faithfully, note that, faithfully teach the word of God, um, what you're actually doing is honoring God as you listen to the elders who are faithfully teaching the word of God. See, faithful preaching is accurately saying what God is saying through his word to us as a congregation. That's, that's why we're to listen to those kind of leaders. And, and so as we think about this, I just want to start kind of applying. This is going to be a very practical sermon for us this morning. Um, what's your attitude like as you rock up to church on a Sunday? It can be easy, can't it, to come with a, a kind of a switched-off attitude, just going through the motions. Or, or maybe even uh, with a critical attitude. Uh, they could have said this differently, or they should have done that differently, or just looking at the things that could have been done a bit differently rather than focusing on what the Word is doing in your life. See, when you have a conversation with a leader, what, what kind of attitude are you bringing to that conversation? Uh, are you coming just as a consumer and you don't even want to engage with the leadership of church at all? Or as you engage, are you, are you willing to come with the sense of humility and, and valuing, holding as weighty what the elders of our church are saying? And obviously, I want to be careful here. Elders are not speaking only exclusively on behalf of God. Pastors of our church are sinful. We might get it wrong. We might have to come and apologize later on. And so there's a sense where we don't want to overdo this. I know churches that kind of, if the, if the pastor says it, it's law. No, no, we're not that kind of church. It's only as faithful as, it, as what it is to what God is saying that we ought to respect and honor and listen to it. Um, but I think for a lot of us, right, this cuts against some of our natural bias to kind of just view uh, authority as the kind of the mate that can say a little bit more. And for those of us that are in that situation, God's calling us to actually respect and hold as weighty the opinions and, and the, the conversations that we have with our leaders in church. Um, or what about other leaders? Uh, they're not pastors, but what about your connect group leaders? Or if you're in a team, your team leader. Do you honor them by showing up and not just kind of not showing up and, and, and ghosting your team leader and, oh, sorry, I just missed it this week? Um, are you listening to them? They're working hard to grow you and help you grow as a disciple of Jesus and to help us be on mission as a church and doing kingdom work here at church. Do you honor them? Do you want to listen to them? Do you care about what they have to say? Are you inviting them to speak into your lives? This is the kind of church that God's calling us to be, where we actually are involved and are invested in each other's lives. Are you part of that kind of a church? There's the first one, respect. And now the second part of double honor, I think Paul's talking about pay. So look, you can see it there. Honoring elders means being willing to pay them as they work for your good. So see verse 18. He says, For the scripture says, Do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain, and the worker is worthy of his wages. <clears throat> so we've got two quotes here. The first is Deuteronomy 25. You see it on the screen there. Do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. This is an exact quotation that Paul has lifted out of Deuteronomy 25. And to be honest, it's just one verse. And if Paul hadn't have quoted it here, he also quotes it in 1 Corinthians 9. It probably wouldn't have had much attention in the Bible. Um, what's going on here? What's the point that Paul's trying to make by talking about oxen? 
Okay, we need to understand a bit of our Old Testament context. Uh, in the Old Testament, the oxen were used in that historical time. They were used to trample the grain. They would tread on the kind of the, the wheat um, and they would separate out the grain, the good bit that you eat, from the unedible bits, the husk, the chaff, the kind of the stalk of the grain. And they, as they trampled it, they would like separate it out and then the workers could come through and collect all the grain. It made it a lot easier for them. Now, what's going on in the context? If you owned an ox, they are worth a lot of money. Okay, they are like, that's like owning, I don't know, a fancy car or a boat. That's the equivalent of a boat, right? Um, don't, you know, don't forget to put petrol in your boat. They're like, you wouldn't do that because of how important it is. Okay, and so if you owned an ox, you wouldn't muzzle it. Um, oxes are worth far more than the little bit of grain that they would eat. So what's probably going on here? is you've borrowed someone else's ox and it's trampling your grain that you're collecting for your harvest. And what's Paul saying? He's saying that it's only fair that if it's working for your good, that you let it eat while it's working. Even though it's not your ox, even though it's going to have a cost to, to your own yield of grain at the end of the harvest. See, you're benefiting from its work and so it's fair that it eats while it works for you. That's the principle, right? And, and it would actually then, in, if you flip it around, it would be unfair if you worked it without letting it eat, both to the ox itself, but also to the person you borrowed it from, because you've actually caused harm to their animal by not feeding it for a whole day or a whole week while it's treading your grain. And Paul says, likewise, applying that passage here, if you're benefiting from the pastor who's working for you in your church, it's fair that you pay them. It's fair that you pay them for the role that they're doing, working to build you up as a disciple in Jesus. Or to put it in the negative, it would be unjust or unfair if you're part of a local church, sitting under the teaching, benefiting from growing as a disciple in the community here, uh, a member of this church, and you're not paying the workers. Okay, there, there's the principle. And, and Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, he unpacks this and he says that not all pastors will get paid. For Paul, he refuses to take a salary from a bunch of the churches that he worked in but because they couldn't afford it and he wanted to make sure nothing got in the way of them knowing that he was doing gospel work. He wasn't here to earn a salary. Um, or they might be bivocational. Paul himself was a tent maker for a lot of his career. But that should be their choice. Uh, you see here, if they're doing the work that's building you up, you ought to partner with them and pay for that work. And the second quote we get here is by Jesus in the Gospels. And he sends out this, the context, Jesus is sending out the 72 disciples to go and share the gospel. And he gives them instructions on what to do and what to say. And, you know, they kind of to go from town to town, stepping in at houses and, and proclaiming the peace that the gospel brings. And, and if they find a house, they should stay there. Luke 10 verse 7, he says, Remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they offer, for the worker is worthy of his wages. Don't move from house to house. See, what Paul quotes Deuteronomy, and he quotes Jesus here in the context of the elders of the local church, and says, if they're working for you, for your good, to build you up, doing kingdom work, you've got a responsibility to partner with that work, to support it. Uh, now, what does that look like here at EV? Um, let, me, let me give you some of the statistics. I told you this is going to be a very practical sermon. Uh, the pastors here all earn what we call a fixed income uh, based on the average weekly earnings for a full-time equivalent with the same qualifications here in Auckland. 
Okay, so what that looks like is it's about $60,000 plus housing, uh, give or take some of the responsibilities and the family and the size of that kind of thing. That's what all the pastors are on. Okay, now that's what the pastors are on. And for a healthy, growing church, church analysts suggest that if your church is healthy and growing, which I think our church is both of those things, that you would need about one full-time equivalent pastor for every 55 people. Okay, church of about 600, 650, we are here in the morning, we've got uni church at night and we've got another campus on the North Shore, so three campuses, about six, 650 people. That would work out to 11 full-time equivalent pastors or gospel workers here among us as a church. Now currently we are at 8.5 full-time equivalent pastors or workers as a church and that's including our administration staff and our apprentices, who are also working and and raising a lot of their own support. So we're actually, it's fair to say, here at EV, we've got a bunch of ox who absolutely love gospel work, but are working pretty hard, okay? We're working pretty hard, joyfully working, working in the Lord. We love it. I love being part of the team here at EV, uh, working hard for God's kingdom. But what is the principle that's being applied here? Your financial partnership is what allows us to keep on growing, to keep on raising up more gospel workers for the harvest and employing more of those into full-time ministry, freeing them up from working other jobs so that we can benefit and grow you in the gospel, grow you as disciples of Jesus and do that in a sustainable way. Right, there's the principle. That's what we're doing as a church. That's why we call us to kind of partner with what we're, what's going on here at EV. And so applying this this morning, this is a little bit awkward for me as one of the pastors of church, but who else is going to do it? It's got to be me. Are you muzzling the ox? Are you muzzling the ox? Are you a Christian? You call this church home. You benefit from the teaching. You're growing as a disciple of Jesus here at EV. You're part of the community but yet you're not financially supporting the work of the kingdom here at EV. If that's you this morning, I think God's calling you today to think about your responsibility to your local church. For some of us, that might mean making changes to our lifestyle and to our budget so that we are actually able to put aside some money to support the work of the church here. For others, it might mean actually getting around to signing up to financially partner and give to church. I've, you know, you might have been meaning to do that for months and you've just been forgetting and putting it off and you, you might want to go home this afternoon and think about that. There are lots of good causes and charities and Christian ministries to give to that we can give to, right? But we've got a specific responsibility to partner with the local church that we belong to. Okay, that, there's the principle. Now, if you're a Christian and you're just checking out our church, we don't want you to feel any pressure to do that. But if you do want to make the decision to commit here and be a part of this church, we'd love you to partner with us. And can I say as well, if you're not a Christian, if you're here this morning and you've just come and you've had this concern that churches are all about getting money off you, and now you're like, oh, great, they're just talking about money. No, no, we're just working through the Bible. This is just the bit of the Bible that we're up to. But if that's you this morning, can I just say we don't want your money. We've got something to give you. We've got the gospel. It's far better than any financial gift that you could give us. We don't want your money. The gospel is free. Okay. In fact, we don't pass an offering bag around. I have people come and complain to me 
because it's so hard to give money to this church if you're not a regular member. People come and say, I want to give some money. Why don't you put it on the thing? That might be you, that you're in that space. We it's, it's annoying. Now, why do we do that? Because we don't, we don't want anyone to feel pressured or obliged to give who is just visiting, who is just checking out Jesus. But the flip side is that if you are a Christian and you belong to this church, don't muzzle the ox. Yeah? Elders are worthy of honor. They've got proven track records, and, and we work hard for your good to grow you in the Lord. But Paul is also aware that elders, pastors are not perfect. Okay, here's the second point elders who sin. This is why Paul says in verse 19 that we need to be slow to ex- accept accusations against elders. You see what he says there? He says, verse 19, don't accept an accusation against an elder unless it is supported by two or three witnesses. Can you see the tension? Elders have a proven character. They're working for your good. They teach the word of God faithfully and they're to live it out in their own lives. But yet, elders are also sinners. They will sin. They will um, fall short. And sometimes those sins are the big serious kind of sins. And so what Paul's saying here is when he says don't accept an accusation, he's not saying don't take claims against elders or pastors seriously, but he's saying don't accept it as true without checking it out. Now, in uh, an oral culture like the first century, that was the support of witnesses who could testify on behalf. We still have a little bit of that today, but the principle is make sure the accusations are weighed and verifiable before just accepting them as true. It's the principle of innocent until proven guilty. Sadly, though, we live in a broken world where pastors do sin and do cause hurt. Because of the position of leadership that elders, pastors have, they have such great opportunity to grow and to benefit you as you grow in the Lord, but also such opportunity to cause hurt and harm if they abuse or misuse that authority. See, lots of us have listened to these podcasts like uh, Rise and Fall of, Fall of Mars Hill or other things like that, leaders who have sinned, and we just feel a bit jaded. Or it might be that you here this morning yourself have been hurt by a leader who has sinned against you. That is so wrong. I am so sad if that's your situation. I'd love to hear more about that and, and, and walk with you through that. Our danger, though, is that we we hear this kind of stuff or we've experienced it ourselves and we think, I don't want to have anything to do with church. All authority is bad authority. We should just walk away from church and religion altogether. But Paul doesn't say that. He's aware that leaders will sin. What does he say? We ought to honor leaders and yet mitigate and be aware of sin and create systems where we can deal with sin when it comes up for a whole church. See, that's why he says in verse 20, publicly rebuke those who sin so that the rest will be afraid. Those who sin are the elders. It's elders who are sinning against others here in the context of verse 19. And the rest is likely talking about other pastors, other elders. But I think could also be rightly including the rest of church. Rebuke pastors who sin so that the other pastors, and in fact, all of us as a church might be aware of that and want to actually avoid sin in our own lives. That's kind of the idea there. Elders have a public ministry, and so it's particularly appropriate that if they are in sin, that that comes up publicly because it causes public hurt. There's the principle. is nothing to be done in the shadows. Don't sweep it under the rug. Um, <laughs> don't avoid dealing with it. 
And sadly, it's just worth acknowledging here that in the history of the Christian church, this has not always been done well. There have been plenty of leaders who have failed to keep this very clear biblical advice, and they have thought, I'm going to hide my own sin or hide the sin of someone else um, so that it doesn't harm their reputation or the reputation of the church or the reputation of Jesus. But what do we see here? It is always better for sin to come to light. It's always better. It's better for those who have sinned to repent and deal with the consequences in their own lives and deal with the hurt that they might have caused. That is always better than hiding it and covering it up. See, sin doesn't just have relational consequences. It doesn't just have legal consequences. It's actually got eternal consequences. You see this in verse 21. Paul says, don't act with favoritism or prejudice. He charges them. He says, I solemnly charge you before God and Christ, Jesus and the elect angels to observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing out of favoritism. Now, this is court language. I charge before, but who are you being charged before? Not any old judge. Before God, before Jesus, before the angels. This is a heavenly court, and these sins have eternal consequences. And so we need to be careful. We need to be careful in in how we relate to each other that we are avoiding sin. Verse 22, don't be too quick to appoint anyone as an elder and don't share in the sins of others. Keep yourselves pure. That's why uh, churches ought to be slow putting in leaders into churches. When I was a, a young man in my early 20s, I wanted to go and plant a church. I had no theological education. I hadn't, I'd, I'd just kind of started my apprenticeship. And I was like, let's go, let's do it. And I am so glad that I didn't do that. If you're, if you're young here and you want to do things for Jesus, can I just encourage you, keep that passion, keep that fire, but yet take the time to show a proven character and gentleness and genuineness in your faith. If, if, in fact, if churches willingly appoint elders who sin, they're actually part of that sin. Do you see that? They don't share in the sins of others. Uh, They're actually responsible for putting in elders if those elders are in sin. That's why at EV, all of our pastors here on staff have done ministry apprenticeships. We've all trained for ministry. All of us have a theological degree. We've all spent five plus years being assessed and trained and having our hearts looked at by godly, wise Christian leaders who have shaped us because we don't want to be quick to put people into positions of authority because of the, both the great opportunity but also the great harm. Now, what do you do if something does come up, if you do have an accusation to make? Let me just talk you through really quickly, practically, what this looks like at our church. We're convinced that it is wise to have good systems in place to deal with this kind of thing. <clears throat> so, uh, there's a slide that's going to come up on the screen. You can see it here. This is our kind of church governance structure. So the first thing I want to say is, if you've got an accusation of sin against your connect group leader or someone like that, um, that's the first level church member. Those are the uh, people who are working among us to lead our connect groups, help us get, be discipled by the word, by prayer in community. Um, if you've got a, something you want to raise against any of those, come and see me or any one of the pastoral staff team, okay? And we'll walk you through that. We'll talk you through that. It'll likely involve thinking through Matthew 18. The principle is that you will take another and go to them to talk it through and not just kind of blindside them without even sharing what's going on. Um, But come and see us. We'll take that seriously. 
Now, if you have an accusation against one of the staff team, you can see their staff team and leaders. Uh, Rowan, our senior pastor, is actually responsible for leading, managing, and dealing with the rest of the pastoral team. And so if you've got an accusation that you want to bring against any one of the pastors or staff team, you would take that to Rowan, and he will be able to work through that with you as the lead pastor of our church. And if you've got an accusation against Rowan, our lead pastor, you can take that, you can see he take it up to the exec team over on the right. Now that's a team of committed men and women who one of the things that they, they do a lot of things, particularly dealing with structures and finance and HR kind of stuff in our church. Um, but what they will do is they've got a formal process that they will f- follow that takes those things, that, that accusation, and particularly takes it up to our board of reference. Do you see that at the top? Board of reference. <clears throat> All right, I know it's a lot. There's a lot of arrows and diagrams. Um, but it's really important that we know this stuff as a church. We want to be above board in our systems and processes. So the board of reference are trusted and godly leaders. Um, and their role is to work with Rowan, our lead pastor, to keep him accountable and make sure that he's leading without sin. Okay, And so they have the power to step him down out of his ministry role. So this is not uh, a free-for-all. This is not uh, where any leader has absolute authority with no accountability. We think it's really wise to have accountability at every level of leadership of our church. I give you that uh, partly in hope that we won't have to use these kind of systems, but also trusting that it is wise to have accountability structures in place and for you to know who to go and talk to if you've ever got those kind of accusations. Now, exec team members, uh, is anyone here in the room? Devolt, uh, Lily, who have we got? Yeah, okay, Steve's there. Um, anyone else? I can't say. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay, okay. So we've got, we've got a few in the room here. So um, you could go and talk to any one of them. And also you could just email through um, and, um, yeah, we will, we will uh, be able to kind of talk you through that. And so just want to make that very clear. There's the process. Let's keep going. Okay. Uh, happy to be down the front at the end, and you can come if you've got questions, you want to talk more about this. Um, welcome to church as well if you're visiting. Well, this is kind of a bit of a family thing. Uh, and dads, we love you too. Let's, <laughs> let's keep going. Okay. There's elders who sin, and Paul continues on with dropping some more wisdom bombs. Verse 23, here's a great pithy wisdom statement. Don't continue only drinking water, but use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. Okay, what's going, what's going on there? It's a bit of a weird verse. I'm not going to go into too much detail, but I think what we see here is that Paul cares not just about the ministry that Timothy's doing, but about Timothy himself. Timothy's got a high-pressure role. He's appointing elders. Uh, He's sick often. Uh, And kind of standard medical advice in the first century was that you could drink watered-down wine. And actually, that was probably a lot safer than drinking the water, which was unsanitary and that kind of thing. And so if he's got a weak stomach, don't drink the dodgy water. Just drink a bit of wine. (coughs) I think it's tied to the purity. Paul says, keep yourself pure. But remember, there are false teachers who are teaching that purity looks like avoiding all this kind of good stuff that God has made. And say, no, 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 you can drink a bit of wine. Purity doesn't mean abstinence from wine altogether. It just means being sensible. right? I think that's what's going on there. Here's the bottom line, verse 24. Some people's sins are obvious, preceding them to judgment, but the sins of others surface later. Likewise, good works are obvious, and those that are not obvious cannot remain hidden. There is a God 
who stands as judge of the universe. See, don't think you've gotten away with your sin because no one else knows about it, because no one else sees it, because it's private and internal in your life. God sees it and he knows about it. He really does. He sees it and he knows about it. But also, he sees the good that you do. Even when no one else can see it, he sees you fighting temptation and sin. He sees you living the kind of sacrificial, kind, gentle life that you are called to putting others above yourselves. Even if those others don't see it, God sees it. He sees the good that you do. He sees when you seek to build others up in love, to care for them, when you seek to invest in them spiritually, practically, in different ways. He sees both the bad and the good. So you can't pull a fast one on God. You can't pretend to be doing good while actually having wrong motives. You can't sin in ways that are private and personal that no one else sees. God sees it. You can't pull the wool over his eyes. God knows what you do. And so for all of us as a church, and particularly the leaders among us here this morning, our only hope is to throw ourselves on God's mercy. He gave himself as a ransom for us that even though we deserve judgment, we might have life. If you're here exploring Jesus, this is the heart of the Christian faith. This is what this chapter sits in the context of the book of 1 Timothy. Paul says he was the worst of sinners and yet Jesus poured out grace and mercy on him in his life. If you know him, you know that to be true for you as well. Grace and mercy poured out on you. This is the wonderful truth that sits central to the Christian faith. You can trust him. You can trust God when you've been hurt by someone else, when they've sinned against you. You can, you can trust that he will be just. That sin hasn't been missed by God. Okay, If you feel guilt and regret for the way that you've treated someone else, you can come to God and find forgiveness from him. And that will actually lead you to want to go and seek out to be reconciled with those that you have hurt. See, the gospel allows us both to seek forgiveness and to forgive because of what Jesus has done for us. It means that we don't have to take justice into our own hands here and now because there is a judge. There is an eternity that is at stake and all will be laid bare on the last day. We can have great comfort and security because we know Jesus. And so even when elders sin, even when we're treated badly by those and we don't deserve it, we can trust Jesus. He is the perfect leader. He's the leader that will never let you down. He is the leader that you can trust with your whole heart. You can open yourself up to him deeper and deeper every day, and he will never take that against you. He'll never use it against you for his own advantage. He gives up every advantage that he has for your good, your glory, your joy so that we might live and grow and be the kind of humans we were made to be, trusting him into eternity. Isn't that good news? Even in the midst of a hard passage. See, here's, here's why this stuff matters. This is point number three. It's because God's name matters most. See, ultimately, all of what we do and the way we treat leaders, the way we hold leaders to account, it's all about God. It's about his name and his honor. That's why we have this process. In chapter 6, Paul shifts gears to talking about slaves and masters. And, and, and what we see is what matters most, even in the context of being a slave, is that God's name is honored. See it there in verse 1 of chapter 6. All who are under the yoke of, of 
under the yoke as slaves, should regard their own masters as worthy of all respect, so that God's name and his teaching will not be blasphemed. It's worth noting that slavery in the first century world was not like, it's not like modern day slavery. Okay, you could use the kind of the word bond servant. Uh, in the first century context, the, the kind of context of this is that um, uh, uh, when you have, uh, you can't pay your debts, your crop has failed, that kind of thing, that you can put yourself into the service of another. That's the kind of, uh, slavery was actually a social net that protected the most vulnerable in that context. And the Bible doesn't condone slavery, okay? The Bible says very clearly it is wrong to own another person because people are made in the image of God. Um, But interestingly, back then, we want Paul to say something like, slaves, fight for your freedom, kill your master if you have to, do whatever you can, because your personal autonomy matters most. But what does he say matters most? It's the name of God. It's so that God won't be blasphemed. He says to slaves who've become Christian, live in such a way so that when your master interacts with you and knows you're a Christian, that they won't speak badly about God. That your, that your Christian faith will give them, and the way that you act will give them no reason to think badly about Christianity or about the God who you serve. See, Paul is not pro-slavery. He writes in the letter of Philemon that Philemon should take back his slave Onesimus as a brother, no longer a slave. And actually, Christianity and the values that Christianity held led to slavery being abolished in the first, you know, a slow process of abolishment uh, as, as kind of history went on. But what matters most is the way that this Christian acts, no matter their economic situation that they act in a way that brings God the glory, God the honor. Could the same be said of you this morning? That in your workplace, at your uni, with your friend group, in your neighborhood, in your sporting team, that the way you work and act could give no one an excuse to speak badly about God? Wow. There's a far greater goal than any kind of social or economic kind of goal that you might have. That you wouldn't be lazy or disrespectful, that you wouldn't just do the bare minimum in your job, that you would be patient and kind and gentle as you relate to others. And so they see the way that you live and they might actually be attracted and drawn into learning more about the God that you follow. See, foundationally, the gospel shapes our identity to be the most important thing. Verse 2, let those who have a believing master not be disrespectful to them because they are brothers. But serve them even better, since those who benefit from their service are believers and dearly loved. Do you you see what matters most for Paul? Do you see the kind of instructions that he's giving that your identity, the the primary identity that he calls them to here is no longer slave and master, but brother. A Christian family, brother, serving one other, loving one another, doing all of that. Your, Your foundational identity has changed if you're in Christ. See, being in Christ is far more important than anything else in your life. Your race, your gender, your cultural context, your social, your economic, your degree that you have, your intelligence, your relational network that you have, all of that matters less than that you are now in Christ. One of his children called to relate to other Christians as brother and sister. See, here it is. The guiding principle that flows through this chapter, that flows through the Christian faith, is that we ought to live lives and live out the gospel in such a way that God is honored. And as we live that way, we're actually not just honoring those other relationships. We're honoring the God 
who set them up, the God who calls us to trust him and live out his way. We're living as the church, the pillar and foundation for the truth. God's household, God's way. Let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful for your house. We are so thankful that uh, we get to know and trust the gospel that we have been called your children. We are so thankful for Jesus, the perfect leader. We pray as we go home and think about uh, some of the structures in our church and, and perhaps even just think about our own lives and, and are we honoring leaders the way we should? Are we working in a way that honors your name? Would you help us to do all of this trusting King Jesus? He is the leader we want to live for. He is the perfect, holy, and righteous King of the universe. We love and trust him with our lives. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.